Vanetics with Gabriel of Urantia and Neon Emerson Chase, an ongoing series of lectures and teachings on spiritual leadership, personal change, and the principles of divine administration. Part of the curriculum of the University of Ascension Science and the Physics of Rebellion. More information can be found at UASPR.org. This episode is titled, On Contemplating the Ministry of God, the Responsibility of Public Leadership. Here is Neon Emerson Chase. Well, I recently, uh, I've been reading about floods and everything. When In this season of drought, I want to be here and read about snow and rain and all those things. And so I was reading about the benefits of a stream or river periodically flooding. And flooding clears out the debris that has built up in the river banks and the river beds, thus having much cleaner water after the flood. At first, during the flood, the water is, is very dirty and churned up. But afterwards, because the river bottoms and the beds have been cleaned out, the water itself is much cleaner. The fast, powerful waters tear out old, dead growth so that new plants have room to come up. As the flood waters slow down, new nutrient-rich soil is deposited that enhances the new growth of these plants. I read last week in the local newspaper that according to a scientist who studies riparian areas and the rivers and streams that are part of those areas, that the Verde River is in better shape than it has been in for many, many years since the last flood in 1995. He stated that that flood in 95 had long-term benefits for the Verde River. The natural world has its cycles, and so do we human beings, for we are a part of that natural world. And the outer natural world parallels the rhythms and cycles of the inner life of personality. We too, as individuals and as groups, have our times of plenty, our times of drought, our times of floods, our times of still waters. We have our seasons of joy, of sorrow, of ease, of hardship, of new life, and of death. We have our times of prosperity and our times of poverty. We experience the deserts, the plains, and the plateaus, the seasides, the mountains. We experience the storms and the lulls. We have in our lives the tormenting tornadoes, the light, refreshing breezes, and the meditative stillness. In the last couple of months, many of us individuals have felt the flood of outer demands that are resulting in us making many shifts, inner as well as outer, to upstep our lives and our ministry. As a group, a community, and as a family, we have certainly felt the stress and pressure of these last several weeks. Amidst this flood of demands, we are already experiencing, though, the benefits of the many shifts and changes that we are making. 
And most of us are excited about the challenges that have come our way, for we see these difficult situations as opportunities to grow in our ministry to others. We live on a fallen planet that is now going through the adjudication of Gabriel of Salvington versus Lucifer. Every human being and every society must experience the cleansing floods of that adjudication process. Those floods not only bring the turmoil of evaluating our lives, our choices, and our values, they bring the clarification, the cleansing, and the healing of the epical revelation. As ministers of this epical revelation, we first must embrace its teachings intellectually and then take the teachings into our hearts and live them daily, allowing the beauty and power of those truths to permeate every corner of our being, every cell, every molecule, every, every atom, every ultimaton, every aeon, and every zion. What we have all experienced is an excitement and a love for what we know and live. We want to share our experience and this revelation with others, and of course, this is what we are meant to do. But we all have experienced deep disappointment when we get disinterest or ridicule or anger or hostility from those we attempt to share this revelation with. We can't understand why someone wouldn't grab on to this intellectual and spiritual gold mine that is found in the Urantia book and the Cosmic Family volumes. Why aren't the strife-torn and confused masses flocking to the mining fields of this revelation? We certainly aren't experiencing any gold rush that Alaska or California did during those days of discovering gold. I came across some comments on um, a site that were made by Bill Sadler, and uh, it's a, I think the site that I came across, it's, it's a Urantia book reader site, and I think it probably was the uh, fellowship site, the Urantia Fellowship, which originally had been the Urantia Brotherhood. And uh, for you who may not be aware, the Urantia Brotherhood was the arm of Urantia Foundation, and the purpose of Urantia Brotherhood was to disseminate the Urantia book. But anyway, <clears throat> I was very grateful that um, this site had made available some um, uh, comments from a meeting that Bill Sadler, who is the son of Dr. William Sadler, made about three years after the publication of the Urantia book. Now, the Urantia book was published in 1955, so this, these comments were probably made in around 1958. And he's speaking to a group of Urantia book readers who've been involved in studying the revelations for several years, even many years before the book was published. They were part of the recently formed Urantia Brotherhood, whose function was to disseminate those teachings. And like us, they felt they had come across a gold mine and had experienced much joy, growth, stimulation, and fulfillment as a result of studying this revelation. And like us, they felt the call 
to be ministers for God and share this revelation with others, in fact, with the world. I'd like to read some of Bill Sadler's words that were spoken over 40 years ago to that group of people. And here they are. I keep holding to that parable of the sower. That's why Jesus told it. I think to comfort folks like us who go forth hopefully sowing seed only to discover that the results vary because of circumstances largely beyond our control. And if you don't think I haven't been parent to many disappointments, you're just flat crazy. I've tried real hard. And I've learned to try in different ways. This whole story I've tried to write, a study of the master universe, by the way, we have that in our library, represents another approach. The previous ones didn't work, so let's try this one. I think our prime purpose in life should be the service of God. This is the true end, and everything leading to that is a means to that end. The Urantia book is not an end. It is a means to the end, and the end is God. We should be interested in doing anything we can do to make God more real to men and women and to introduce them to God if we can. This, to me, is our prime objective in life. The Urantia book I consider to be the most valuable tool in achieving this objective. If we put our whole lives in the larger perspective, and if we say we are primarily engaged in the attempted service of God to our fellow men and women, and this is our supreme goal, this is the true end. Our primary objective is the service of God. Our secondary objective is the propagation of the Urantia book. You see, this attempt at service makes an adventure out of any life because it adds to life the condiments, the salt and pepper and spice of spirituality or attempted spirituality. And when you look at anybody as a potential brother or sister, life is a perpetual adventure then. And you never know what's going to happen five minutes from now or what you may be involved in. You're alert. It produces an attitude which changes your conduct. I think the attitude of the attempted service of God is important to our function in life. We're planning to serve God, and the mere presence of that plan in our minds is apt to make it more possible to serve God. The difference between a suspect and a prospect is the feeling of need. Jesus didn't confuse the two. Coming down from the Swiss lakes, he, wanted no, he wasted no sales talk on a suspect, and Gaynid got after him, as you'll recall. In case of doubt, I'd sow the seeds. I always sow seeds if I doubt, and if I feel there's a chance. But since I'm, not, I'm going to gamble and take long chances, I must be prepared to be disappointed a fairly heavy percentage of the time. But I'd rather be disappointed many times than miss one seed sowing. How can you escape that paradox? If you're going to take long chances, you must expect frequent losses. Now let me give you a larger picture. 
I don't think we're alone, and I don't think this book is dependent on merely human resources. However, I don't believe that superhuman agencies have any basis to work on if human beings are not first diligent. There's no use telling the twins, Andon and Fanta, northward until they have entertained the concept of fleeing. Otherwise, the word northward has no meaning, does it? I have undoubted faith that the associates of the authors of these papers who are charged with the superhuman supervision of planetary affairs are well aware of this book, of our problems, of our efforts, of our frustrations, and our bad judgments, and our good judgments, of our good wisdom, and of our lack of wisdom. And I'm quite sure that they will, in a most intelligent way, take advantage of all of our human efforts. They are not without their resources. I don't believe they can cause so much as they can coordinate. But if we give them nothing to coordinate, they won't have much to do, will they? <laughs> now, I don't think faith is a substitute for good judgment and wisdom in our actions. But if we use the best judgment, the best wisdom, the most common sense diligence that we're capable of using, if we keep this in perspective, if we remember that God is more important than the Urantia book or the Urantia Brotherhood, then I think we'll be useful servants. I don't think we're alone in this project. I've got a lot of faith in our friends. But I think the first moves are ours. We've got to give them some grist to work on. We've got to get seeds out there that they can perhaps maneuver. Now there's a lot of good counsel in those words of Bill Sadler's for us ministers in divine administration. And we do have Jesus as the example of living his ministry. He was the avatar, the minister, the teacher that we have as an inspiration and a guide for each one of us. And thank, thank God for that last section of the Urantia book that gives us that life and those teachings. What made Jesus so noble and great as a minister for others? On page 1670 of the Urantia book, we're told that he understood the mind of people. He knew also what was in the hearts of individuals. He was able to relate to each person as an individual. He didn't stereotype people. He looked at them as unique individuals. He was able to know their mental emotional and spiritual states and minister to those individual needs. He also had an understanding of human nature in general and what human beings universally share. And of course, he had a tremendous love and compassion for persons and built self-respect in those that he ministered to. In his instructions for teachers and believers that is found on pages 
765 to 1767 of the Urantia book, Jesus said about himself, I am not only teacher, I am not only tender of people's feelings and patient with their frailties, but I am also ruthless with sin and intolerant of iniquity. I am indeed meek and humble in the presence of my Father, but I am equally and relentlessly inexorable where there is deliberate evil doing and sinful rebellion against the will of my Father in heaven. Sounds like a warrior, doesn't he? In other words, he ministered in the Father, the Son, and the Mother circuitry, depending upon the individuals and the situation. Sometimes he was comforting and nurturing, and sometimes he was confronting. In talking to his apostles and evangelists, Jesus said, You should remember that in body and mind, emotionally, people react individually. The only uniform thing about individuals is the indwelling spirit. Only through and by appeal to this spirit can humankind ever attain unity and brother-sisterhood. In other words, you must speak to each person's higher self, the self that is in tune with the fragment of the Father. Jesus appealed to each person's better self while understanding their lower natures. He was not an enabler, feeding into people's fears, resentments, stupidities, and erroneous addictive attitudes. He was an inspirer and encourager of nobility and ethical thinking and acting. He said, make your appeals directly to the divine spirit that dwells within the minds of people. Jesus was a teacher who taught as the occasion served. He was not usually a systematic teacher, and he taught not so much from the law as from life, and often by parables that used common daily situations to bring in a higher perspective. Gabriel teaches that way often. The Urantia book tells us on page 1672 that Jesus was patient in dealing with backward and troublesome inquirers. He inspired hope and confidence in the hearts of all who came under his ministry. Only those who had not met him feared him, and he was hated only by those who regarded him as a champion of that truth which was destined to overthrow the evil and error which they had determined to hold in their hearts at all costs. In those instructions for teachers and believers, we can determine key points in Jesus' counsel and advice on ministering to others. First and foremost was his emphasis on respecting yourself and others. And he said it over and over again. Never, never destroy the self-respect of another person. Always, he said, 
respect the personality of persons. And we who study the Urantia book know in a much broader way what personality is. In honoring self-respect in others, Jesus advised never to use dial power in promoting your cause. He said, never should a righteous cause be promoted by force. Spiritual victories can only be won by spiritual power. This injunction against the employment of material influences refers to psychic force as well as physical force. An example of psychic force would be using overpowering arguments and mental superiority to coerce someone to think the way you think. Jesus said that a person's mind is not to be crushed by the mere weight of logic or overawed by shrewd eloquence. He said, take care that you do not wound the self-respect of timid and fearful souls. Do not indulge in sarcasm at the expense of my simple-minded brethren. Be not cynical with fear-ridden children. I myself often have to be very, very careful in this area, for I have at times an impatience in dealing with others who may not see the things the way I do, or who seem to be slow on getting it. And also, I can be sarcastic in my impatience. I also can tend to argue with someone to prove that I'm correct. And I am a good arguer. I debate well. But using my intellectual prowess, and my ability to yap, to coerce someone to understand or see something, is not necessarily always the correct method, especially when those who are humble, with those who are humble and are sincerely seeking God's truth and will. Another example of incorrectly using psychic force is appealing to people's lower emotions. Jesus said, while emotion as a factor in human decisions cannot be wholly eliminated, it should not be directly appealed to in the teachings of those who would advance the cause of the kingdom. Do not appeal to fear, pity, or mere sentiment. Never be guilty of such unworthy tactics. As you are all aware, we of Aquarian Concepts have been accused of appealing to people's fear and that we instill fear in them. We, though, here, we have a different story to tell, for we experience something quite the contrary. And I'm not going to go any further in that area, but we do need to tell our stories. In discussing appealing to the higher self, the spirit of God within each person, Jesus said, sometimes the children of the kingdom will realize that strong feelings of emotion are not equivalent to the leadings of the divine spirit. To be strongly 
and strangely impressed to do something or to go to a certain place does not necessarily mean that such impulses are the leadings of the indwelling spirit. He went on to say, teach all believers to avoid leaning upon the insecure props of false sympathy. You cannot develop strong characters out of the indulgence of self-pity. Honestly endeavor to avoid the deceptive influence of mere fellowship in misery, where everybody gets together and sitting on the pity pot and boohooing together and being victims together. He goes on to say, extend sympathy to the brave and courageous while you withhold overmuch pity from those cowardly souls who only half-heartedly stand up before the trials of living. Offer not consolation to those who lie down before their troubles without a struggle. Sympathize not with your fellows merely that they may sympathize with you in return. There's a bumper sticker that I occasionally see on a car, and I've seen it for several years now, and I just love it, and it simply says, no sniveling. <laughs> what Jesus is talking about here, we call misplaced compassion. And I have had that problem, too, of having a lot of misplaced compassion and feeling obligated to pity and sympathize people who are sniveling when maybe their butt should have been kicked or I should have just turned around and walked off. As ministers in divine administration, we should have a balance in praising and rebuking others. Jesus said, Make not the mistake of only condemning the wrongs in lives of those you minister to. Remember also to accord generous recognition for the most praiseworthy things in their lives. Flattery is false. Beware of that which is so prevalent among insincere people. One of the marks of true religious living is being able to acknowledge spiritual growth in others and to honor those others for that growth and for things that are truly of religious value. Thank you very much. Vanetics with Gabriel of Urantia and Neon Emerson Chase an ongoing series of lectures and teachings on spiritual leadership, personal change, and the principles of divine administration. Part of the curriculum of the University of Ascension Science and the Physics of Rebellion. More information can be found at uaspr.org.